Welcome to Russian History Retold. Episode 263, KGB Operations in Europe and the U.S., Part 2. Last time, we began our discussions on the spying operations carried out in Europe and the U.S. before and immediately after World War II on behalf of the Soviet Union. Today, we begin with the Big Red Scare and the U.S. of the 1950s, led by the junior senator from Wisconsin, Joseph McCarthy. As I mentioned in the previous episode, there were a lot of Soviet spies in the United States, and they did a great deal of harm through their acts of espionage. It caused people to panic, especially in the political arena. Senator Joseph McCarthy was the leader of the mass hysteria that gripped the U.S. in the 1950s. While he was correct that the threat was real, the problem was he was pointing his finger at both guilty and innocent people. In his book, Reds, author Ted Morgan writes this about the senator, quote, McCarthy did not emerge in a vacuum, but as the most prominent in a long line of men who exploited the communist issue for political advantage, recklessly smearing their opponents with false accusations. These McCarthyites used forged documents to make their case or conducted raids of questionable legality to enhance their political reputations of the suborned perjury and the testimony of professional informants or used the communist issue to smear the New Deal. Still, he did acknowledge that there were spies. Quote, the other side of the equation was that the American Communist Party served as a recruitment pool for Soviet agents. American communists by the dozens penetrated the government, some at high levels, and stole scientific and political secrets, including information on the atomic bomb. This was confirmed by the release in 1995 of the Venona transcripts, the decoded cable traffic between the Moscow KGB and its American stations. But what Morgan points out is that, quote, McCarthy and his predecessors knew nothing of Venona and flayed about like blindfolded men in a room full of bats. The bats were there, but beyond reach. He further writes, quote, The danger was real, but by the time McCarthy came on the scene, it was all but spent and the Communist Party was morbid, so that he was, in fact, whipping a dead horse. This last statement is important. That McCarthy began to point fingers at people being communists when the whole communist movement in the U.S. was dissolving is not surprising. It is beyond sad. Thousands of people lost careers based on false information. Many may have had communist sympathies in the past, but that didn't mean they hadn't changed their positions. To McCarthy, that didn't seem to matter. To him, once a communist, always a communist. The period in American history where McCarthy held court in his anti-communist hysteria was from 1950 until 1954. His downfall began in 1953 when he began privately attacking J. Robert Oppenheimer, the man who led the teams that developed the atomic bomb. 
One of the reasons for their suspicion that Oppenheimer was a Soviet agent was his opposition to the development of the hydrogen bomb. While reviewing the material from the Mitrokhin archive and the Venona transcripts, there is absolutely no evidence that Oppenheimer was a Soviet agent. If anything, he was a man of strong convictions that believed that atomic weapons should never be used again. According to David Lilenthal, a man who sat on a committee to determine whether to revoke Oppenheimer's security clearance, quote, his crime was that he did not show the proper enthusiasm about the H-bomb program. As a result, Oppenheimer was removed from the program he developed. It was one of the consequences of McCarthyism. It provided a benefit to the Soviets that no agent could have matched. The eventual downfall of McCarthy came at the hands of Edward R. Murrow, a journalist with CBS television. It was on a show called, quote, A Report on Senator Joseph R. McCarthy. I recommend watching this. It's a highly entertaining show, and you can find it on YouTube. In the end, Murray said this about what McCarthy was doing, quote, no one familiar with the history of this country can deny that congressional committees are useful. It is necessary to investigate before legislating. But the line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one, and the junior senator from Wisconsin has stepped over it repeatedly. His primary achievement has been in confusing the public mind as between the internal and the external threats of communism. We must not confuse dissent with disloyalty. We must remember that accusation is not proof, and that conviction depends on evidence and due process of law. We will not walk in fear of one another. We will not be driven by fear into an age of unreason if we dig deep in our history and our doctrine, and remember that we are not descended from fearful men, not from men who fear to write, to speak, to associate, and to defend causes that were, for the moment, unpopular. This is no time for men who oppose Senator McCarthy's methods to keep silent or those who approve. We can deny our heritage and our history, but we cannot escape responsibility for the result. There is no way for a citizen of a republic to abdicate his responsibilities. As a nation, we have to come into our full inheritance at a tender age. We proclaim ourselves, as indeed we are, the defenders of freedom whenever it continues to exist in the world, but we cannot defend freedom abroad by deserting it at home. The actions of the junior senator from Wisconsin have caused alarm and dismay amongst our allies abroad and given considerable comfort to our enemies. And whose fault is that? Not really his. He didn't create this situation of fear. He merely exploited it, and rather successfully. Cassius was right. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars but in ourselves. McCarthy and his scattergun approach to ferreting out MGB and NKVD agents and American traders became a perfect cover for the real Soviet spies. 
The real problem was that the Soviets knew who the Venona files had pointed out as spies, so they could counter it with new infiltrations and warn those on the list so they could be removed and taken back to the Soviet Union. Well, how did they get this information? Much of it came from the British double agent, Kim Philby. Philby was the chief of the Secret Service in Great Britain after the war and was appointed as the SIS station commander in the U.S. capital, Washington, D.C. He was given a briefing about Venona and actually read everything he could. While the initial revelation to the Soviets about the existence of Venona was given to them by William Weissband, he was arrested and could no longer provide any additional information. Philby, on the other hand, could. Not only did he provide information on what the U.S. and British knew about secret agents, but he was also able to see information about British and American agents and where they were being dropped off. Many were captured and executed by the MGB because of Philby. While Philby saved many top spies, one he could not protect was Klaus Fuchs, who was convicted in a British court of espionage in 1950. It has been said that Fuchs was the one person most responsible for the Soviets catching up to the Americans in nuclear armament. Fuchs would serve a term of nine years, and when he was freed, he would relocate to East Germany. Another major spy was Guy Burgess. He was a British diplomat and Soviet agent and a member of the Cambridge Five spy ring, that operated from the mid-1930s to the early years of the Cold War era. His defection in 1951 to the Soviet Union with his fellow spy, Donald McLean, led to a serious breach in Anglo-United States intelligence cooperation and caused long-lasting disruption and demoralization in Britain's foreign and diplomatic services. So, who is behind all of the successes of the Soviet spy system? That would be MGB head Lavrenti Beria. After the war, it was Beria who would oversee the Soviet atomic bomb project. Stalin prioritized it, and the project was completed in under five years. This was way, way ahead of any of the expectations Stalin had of him. Not only was Beria the head of the foreign spies on the American nuclear weapons program, but he was also the head of the Soviet program. In December 1944, the NKVD supervised the Soviet atomic bomb project known as Task Number 1, which built and tested a bomb by August 29, 1949. The project was highly labor-intensive. At least 330,000 people, including 10,000 technicians, were involved. The Gulag system provided tens of thousands of people for work in the uranium mines and for the construction of operation of uranium processing plants. They also constructed test facilities, and few of them were in Siberia and Irkutsk. When Stalin died in 1953, Beria followed later on in the year as he was executed by those who feared him. Most of their fear was because Beria likely had the goods on them through his extensive spy network. 
His replacement was Ivan Alexandrovich Serov. After the death of Stalin, Serov, who had Beria's trust, betrayed him. He conspired with the officers of the GRU against Beria to avoid his own downfall. Serov was then in charge of a new phase of Soviet spying, that of what was known as influence operations. Their goal was to discredit their main enemy, the Americans. Instead of infiltrating U.S. governmental agencies, they would plant disinformation and conspiracy theories, much like Russia is doing today. Back then, there was no internet, of course, to quickly push these falsehoods. It took real skill and finesse, which wasn't really a forte for many of the KGB and FCD officers. FCD was known as the First Chief Directorate or Foreign Intelligence under the KGB. One of the most talked-about incidents, which has been linked to the KGB and the FCD, is the assassination of U.S. President John F. Kennedy. According to the Mitrokin archives, they had nothing to do with it, despite Oswald's defection to the Soviet Union in 1959. However, they did have a theory based on their intelligence work. The deputy chairman of the KGB reported to the Central Committee in December of 1963, quote, A reliable source of the Polish Friends, the Polish Intelligence Service, an American entrepreneur and owner of a number of firms closely connected to the petroleum circles of the South, reported in late November that the real instigators of the criminal deal were three leading oil magnates from the south of the U.S., Richardson, Murchison, and Hunt, all owners of major petroleum reserves in the southern states who have long been connected to pro-fascist and racist organizations in the south. This comes from Boris Yeltsin's book, The View from the Kremlin. H.L. Hunt once said, quote, The communists need not invade the United States. Pro-Bolshevik sentiment in the United States is already greater than when the Bolsheviks overthrew the Kerensky government and took over Russia. Additionally, H.L.'s son, Bunker Hunt, paid for an advertisement in the Dallas Morning News on the day of Kennedy's visit, accusing him of being a communist stooge. Furthermore, Jack Ruby, who murdered Oswald on November 24th, had visited the Hunt offices before the assassination. The KGB believed that Oswald was chosen because of his visit to Moscow in 1959. The KGB thought that the oil magnates wanted to point toward the Soviet Union to try to intensify the Cold War and the, quote, strengthen the reactionary and aggressive elements of American foreign policy. That's likely that Oswald acted alone, but we may never know for sure. The KGB tried their hand at kind of trying to spread conspiracy theories to stir things up. One of the ways the KGB attempted to push a false narrative was when they fabricated a note, supposedly from Oswald to E. Howard Hunt, a former CIA officer and later Watergate conspirator. It said, quote, Dear Mr. Hunt, I would like information concerning my position. I'm only asking for information. 
I am suggesting that we discuss the matter fully before any steps are taken by me or anyone else. Thank you. Lee Harvey Oswald. This was supposedly handed to FBI Director Clarence Kelly. The New York Times believed it to be authentic, as did Oswald's widow, Marina. Still, the KGB got what it wanted. The U.S. public mistrusted their government, much like what Russia has been doing to the country in recent years. When it came to picking targets to become spies for the Soviet Union, the KGB would oftentimes pick on those men and women with serious mental or behavioral issues. For example, back in the 1930s through the 50s, they would target gay men as it was not socially acceptable at the time. One was Guy Burgess, who worked with Kim Philby at the British consulate in Washington, D.C. Not only was he gay, but he was an abject alcoholic who would act erratically to the point of being sent home after being caught speeding three times in one day. According to his Soviet controller, Yuri Modin, Burgess was cracking and that, quote, his nerve was going and that he could no longer take the strain of his double life. Burgess had been recruited by the Soviet secret police way back in 1934 by Arnold Deutsch, the man who recruited Kim Philby, as well as others within the spy network known as the Cambridge Five. The goal of the Soviet spies in England was to penetrate British intelligence. Burgess was their man, as well as Philby. What Burgess was able to accomplish was partly due to his homosexuality. He would frequent gay bars wherever he was stationed and have liaisons with other men within the government. Because of the fear of being outed, they would provide Burgess with the information he asked for, which he would then forward to Moscow. In addition, Burgess was prolific in his handing over sensitive documents. One example was on December 7, 1949, when he handed over 660 pages of confidential material to Modin. The other close associate of Burgess, who helped shuttle secrets to the Soviets, was Donald McLean. He had been recruited by the NKVD in 1934, while still at Cambridge University. McLean was then instructed by his handlers to give up his political activity in campus and enter the diplomatic service. He would pass all the requirements and tests with flying colors. There was some suspicion of his being a communist, as McLean had visited Moscow in 1932, but when questioned, he replied, quote, At Cambridge, I was initially favorable to it, but I'm a little by little getting disenchanted with it. This apparent sincerity satisfied members of the panel, which included a family friend, Lady Violet Bonham Carter. Sent to Cairo, Egypt as the head of the Chancers in 1948, at the young age of 35, McLean began to show signs of mental illness, primarily because of the strain of being a double agent. He would send two notes to Moscow asking to be relieved of his position as a spy. While they pondered the request, McLean went on a violent drinking binge with Philip Toynbee, a British writer. The Brit would recall him just four days later, sending him to a psychiatrist for treatment. Rather than dismissing him, McLean was promoted and made head of the American Department in the Foreign Office. 
This position was critical in Soviet and Chinese decision-making during the Korean conflict in 1950. McLean sent Moscow information concerning the emergency summit in Washington in December 1950 between British Prime Minister Clement Attlee and the U.S. President Harry S. Truman. He was to inform Moscow that the British were opposed to the use of nuclear weapons when the Chinese entered the conflict, something that General Douglas MacArthur was demanding. President Truman reassured Attlee at the Washington summit that he would not allow the use of nuclear weapons or take the war outside of Korea. McLean provided the transcript of what was said at the Truman-Attlee summit to Yuri Moden. McLean was discovered as a mole based on the Venona transcripts. Since Kim Philby was aware of this, he tried to warn McLean, who was now in England. It was the intention of Philby in Moscow that McLean escape alone. But on May 25, 1951, Guy Burgess showed up and the two men disappeared. They would reappear in Moscow, although the Soviet government wouldn't admit their residency for five years. McLean would assimilate seamlessly into Soviet society, while Burgess would not. McLean's wife and children would join him in 1952, but due to his heavy drinking, they would break up a few years later. She would have an affair with Kim Philby, who arrived in Moscow after being outed as a spy in 1963. Following their pattern of trying to recruit behaviorally challenged agents, the Soviets used a former CIA agent, Philip Agee, to discredit the agency through his connections to Cuban intelligence. At first, Agee approached the KGB in Mexico City, offering them reams of information about CIA operations. However, the head of counterintelligence of the FCD, Oleg Kalugin, was very suspicious and turned him away. A.G. then went to the Cubans, who took him in. A.G.'s resignation from the CIA in 1968 was forced, quote, for a variety of reasons, including his irresponsible drinking, continuous and vulgar propositioning of embassy wives, and inability to manage his finances. This was according to John Barron from his book, The KGB Today, published in 1983. A.G. would write a book entitled Inside the Company, CIA Diary. In it, he outed about 250 CIA agency officers and agents, putting their lives in danger. His reasoning for the book was that, quote, millions of people all over the world have been killed or had their lives destroyed by the CIA and the institutions it supports. After a lengthy public debate, Philip Agee was forced to leave Great Britain in 1977. After he left for Holland and then Havana, Cuba, the KGB was gleeful in the debacle they helped to ferment. Two more agents in recent history were Robert Hansen and Aldrich Ames. They were two of the most damaging spies in U.S. history. Ames only operated from 1985 to 1993, while Hansen spied from 1979 to 2001. Together, their leaks resulted in the exposure of hundreds of U.S. assets in the Soviet Union, in Russia, and all the neighboring countries. Still, their most direct damage to the U.S. military was from exposing one high-level asset. 
General Dmitry Palikov was the head of Soviet intelligence and a significant spy for the U.S., providing information on Soviet anti-armored missile technology, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and China. That fountain of military intelligence shut down when Polyakov was revealed by Ames and Hansen, leading to Polyakov's execution in 1988. As you can see, the Soviet Union, and now Russia, has enjoyed decades of spying on the United States and Europe. I could have gone out for hours on the other penetrations of high levels of intelligent communities and governments worldwide, especially in Latin America and Africa, but that's for another time. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we start a new topic, inspired by a gift from my daughter, Annika, for Christmas. It was a book that takes us on a journey on the Trans-Siberian Railway. So, until next time, das vidanya y spasiba za venya manya.